Our message this morning is entitled, Pursuing Greater Sanctification. Pursuing Greater Sanctification. Last week, we spoke on the subject of new beginnings, being the first weekend that we gathered together in the year 2020, being a new beginning of a year, a time that we reflect on the things that we want to do this year, the mistakes and the victories of the year that has gone before. And we focused on God's creative power. God created in the beginning of time. God has created us anew in Christ Jesus. But we also spoke about our own personal beginnings. The fact that we have a beginning of spiritual life, we have a beginning of physical life, and we have a beginning of discipleship. When we hear the Word and the Spirit convicts us, we respond positively to the Word. We take up our crosses and we're baptized. And also the fact that we can experience a new beginning every day. The Lord's mercies are new every day. If you failed yesterday, today is a new opportunity to glorify the Lord. And Every morning when we wake up, we should have that perspective that today is a new day. It's another day that I have another opportunity to take up my cross and to follow him. Today we want to speak on a very emphasized theological concept in the Word of God, the subject of sanctification as a bit of a continuation of the thoughts that we discussed last week on the subject of new beginnings. Sanctification. As we always do, we want to define our terms as we present this thought to you today. And just up front, we want to tell you that we look at this concept from a couple of different angles. There will be a couple of different aspects of sanctification that we want to study. And I think that when you announce the subject being a theological concept, a subject such as sanctification, sometimes people think, okay, what, what sort of excitement is going to be in this message? I was in a conversation uh, yesterday with someone online who was looking for a church that sang traditional hymns and used the King James Bible. And so far I'm thinking, well, hey, that's exactly like we are as a church. And they said, I want a church where there's a lot of fellowship and there's a lot of friendship and there's a lot of interaction. And I said, that's exactly what we are as a church. And then she said, I want a church where the preacher screams and yells and pounds the pulpit and sweats profusely. And I said, well, you've lost me there. When you introduce the subject of sanctification, sometimes people think, well, this is going to be one of those messages that is perhaps more luxury. And by that, I mean both in terms of the demeanor of the person who is sharing it and also the subject matter that is, I'm just lecturing you on trying to be more holy in your life. But I think as we discuss this today, we'll see that nothing could be further from the truth as we talk about sanctification. And so as we define our terms... And again, we want to share a couple of different aspects of sanctification. We want to share two definitions of sanctification with you and hopefully demonstrate how these two definitions connect with one another, how they apply in our lives, these two aspects or definitions of sanctification. Now, the most simple definition, definition number one, this is what you find commonly in concordances and lexicons and theological dictionaries. It's probably the one that most of you have in mind if you've ever heard a message on sanctification. is simply something that is set apart for holy use, to set something apart for holy usage. If I sanctified something, I set it apart for holy usage. When God sanctifies something, it's set apart to be used in a holy way. 
a synonym for that particular usage of sanctification. The word sanctify could be to consecrate. And we'll look at a few examples of this in just a moment. So to set something apart for holy usage is to sanctify it. And the act of officially setting it aside is the act of consecration. Something that is sanctified has been consecrated. Something that is consecrated is a sanctified thing. Definition number two, and this is from Elder Michael Gowen's Systematic Theology, Basic Bible Doctrines. His definition is the ongoing work of inner transformation into Christ's glorious image. And so rather than looking at it from the ceremonial aspect, the ceremonial angle, Elder Gowen's definition of that looks at it from the own personal inner working perspective. In other words, again, the ongoing work of inner transformation into Christ's glorious image. Or, in other words, our own personal holiness, our own personal level of righteousness. You might say that when we become more like Christ, we experience greater sanctification. When we become more like Jesus Christ, we experience greater sanctification. I think people might be inclined to reverse that. When you experience greater sanctification, you're more like Christ. But I want not to put the cart before the horse this morning. It's not about being more holy so I can be more like Jesus. It's about being more like Jesus so I can be more holy. Does that make sense? What happens if I just want to be more holy, not having the Lord Jesus Christ as the center focal point of my discipleship? I run the risk of becoming a very notorious group of individuals, one of a very notorious group of individuals in the New Testament, in the personal ministry of Jesus, how many of you know the name of that group of people? The Pharisees. They were all about cleaning the outside of the cup, but the inside was full of extortion and excess. In other words, they looked holy to other people, and they thought that they were holy, but they could not be further from true holiness. Our sanctification isn't about me being more holy as if it's some sort of level that I can level up to. Any of you young folks play video games, you know that it's all about leveling up and having more power, more abilities, more score, more whatever. It's not about leveling up for the sake of me leveling up. It's about me being more like Jesus. And as I am more like Christ, then I am, I've experienced a greater degree of sanctification. Again, his definition, the ongoing work of the inner transformation, of inner transformation into Christ's glorious image. Now, regarding the former, we want to look at these two definitions, these two aspects, one at a time, and talk first about this earlier definition that I gave you, to set something aside for holy usage or to consecrate it. And then we want to come back and look at the second definition, how it applies to us personally and how we can build on that in a practical sense as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we consider this first definition, to set something aside for holy usage, this is to view sanctification more in a positional sense. When we talk about positional, what do we mean by that? That's a term that we use when we're trying to understand and rightly divide, rightly apply the exhortations or the doctrines of the Word of God. Sometimes you hear it referred to as doctrine and practice. 
We talk about doctrine, we have reference to things such as how we're saved, how we go to heaven, what we were by nature, the person of Christ, the identity, the makeup of the Trinity, the three-in-one Godhead. Those are things that we consider doctrinal. How to be a good husband or a good wife, a good disciple, a good student of the Word. We often look at that through the lens of that which is practical. So we divide many times the doctrine from the practice. Now, truth be told, everything in Scripture is doctrinal. There's no divide between doctrine and practice in the Word of God, but we break this down in such a way to be able to categorize it and understand it. You might refer to that which is positional as that which is doctrinal, your standing with God. That which relates to our daily life, we refer to as experimental or experiential regarding our experience, or again, that which is practical. So, you might hear a pastor or a preacher or a theologian speak about sanctification from a positional sense where you are in Christ exclusively through grace. Or you might hear a pastor speak about sanctification in a practical sense, the daily growth that we all ought to desire as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll speak to both of those senses of this word momentarily. But as we consider this former definition, to set something aside for holy usage, we look at this in a positional sense, and sometimes we focus so much on the second sense of this word that we omit discussions about the former sense of this word. And so this first definition is one that we want to share several examples with from the perspective that as sanctified people... Through his grace, through the workings of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, God in glory has set you individually, personally aside for holy usage. You have been set aside for holy usage. We look at this so often in the practical sense or maybe the vital sense of growing in holiness, being made holy, being given a holy nature by God through grace at the new birth, that we fail to appreciate the ceremonial, and that's another theological term that's important for today's discussion, we fail to appreciate the ceremonial sense of this word, the religious significance of it. Now just to demonstrate what I mean by that, I'm going to share with you several examples of things in the Old Testament that were sanctified. As we talk about sanctification from a New Testament perspective, we have to understand and remember that though this is a New Testament framework, it's an Old Testament term. It's a term that appeared many times in the Old Testament. Anytime we, anytime we find a New Testament term in the Old Testament, we should stop and reflect on that and think about that, examine that. There are some terms in the New Testament, some terms that we use theologically that don't occur in the Old Testament. They're things that have been revealed to us through the Holy Spirit, through the writings of the Apostle for our day. Many of them were alluded to. Some of them were prophetically foretold. But this word sanctification is something. Sanctify, sanctified is a word that occurs many times in the Old Testament. It's a very commonly used religious term. And with that concept before us, remember that you have been sanctified by God. The book of Genesis chapter 2, the first one that we want to look at, verse 3. God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. 
because that in it he rested from all his work which God created and made. What did God do to the seventh day of the week all the way back the very first week when God created the universe? God sanctified it. He sanctified it. Now the seventh day of the week is what day? It's not today. If you said Sunday, you need to relook at that calendar. The seventh day of the week is Saturday. You might wonder, why do we not worship on Saturday anymore? There's a large body of Christians in the world who believe that you're to worship only on Saturday. And some of them go as far in some of the fringe groups among those people to say that if you worship on Sunday, you have been struck by the mark of the beast. That's kind of scary. Put that on billboards, it gets people's attention. Why do we worship on Sunday if the original sanctified day was the seventh day? Because the Lord Jesus Christ rose again on the first day of the week. What do we have in Christ? What did we talk about last week? A new beginning. This is the New Testament. There were no laws concerning how to observe the seventh day of the week until God gave the law through Moses. The word Sabbath does not occur in the Bible until God gives the law through Moses. <clears throat> but the seventh day was a sanctified day. The day that we set aside in the New Testament is the first day of the week because this is a new beginning in Christ. We literally celebrate Easter every single week. Jesus rose again on the first day of the week. Every Sunday, every first day, every Lord's Day, we come together and we worship him. You find this in the book of Acts chapter 20. Paul meets with the disciples on the first day of the week to preach unto them, to worship, and to break bread. What are they doing? They're worshiping on the first day of the week. Paul would refer to this in the book of 1 Corinthians. The day when the church at Corinth came together was not the seventh day, but the first day of the week. Why? Again, Jesus rose again on the first day. But at the beginning... When God created the week, he rested on the seventh day and he sanctified that as a day of rest, as a day to reflect upon his creation, his providence, his works in the world. It was a sanctified day. Or in other words, the day was set aside for holy use, set aside for holy use. In the book of Exodus chapter 19, and I'm going to hit these rather quickly and move on. So we have time to develop the second aspect of sanctification today. But in the book of Exodus chapter 19 and verse 14, Moses went down from the mountain, this is Mount Sinai, unto the people and sanctified the people and washed their clothes. He goes on to tell the men, be ready against the third day, come not at your wives. In other words, this is a time period that you need to reflect on holy things. Don't go chasing your women, men folk. It's kind of an interesting reference. I found that to be rather humorous myself. Moses went down from the mount unto the people and sanctified the people. And what did he do to consecrate them in that way? He said, be separate, be separate and wash your clothing. And that was, in a sense, a consecration. They were in that sanctified. Now this gives us a little more insight into the concept of sanctification. Sometimes people think about sanctification only in the sense of, well, you're sanctified, something happened so you can go to heaven. 
And as American Christians, that's how we tend to view everything. Every time we see the word save, every time we see the word justify, every time we see the word sanctify, we think of only, quote, getting saved. Getting saved. And I intentionally left the G off the end of that word on purpose. Getting saved. Did this do anything to render the people able to go to heaven here in Exodus 19? No, it didn't have anything at all to do with people going to heaven. Does the seventh day go to heaven? It was sanctified. No. We see that this word has reference to something that is to be consecrated, used in a holy way. One of the resources that I read this week about sanctification made the great point that God is holy and things down here are not. And so for a holy God to use or utilize something down here for his purposes, for his holy purposes, it takes consecrating it and sanctifying it. And remember, the law is a shadow of good things to come. So when God is sanctifying days and God is sanctifying people and God is sanctifying, as we'll see momentarily, even places and types of people and instruments that are used in his worship, when God is sanctifying them, he's telling us that something has to happen to prepare someone to be used by God. Because the law is a shadow of good things to come. But this again depicts how this is a religious term, a ceremonial term, a term that is used in, a, in connection with worship in a religious context. Exodus 19.14, the people were sanctified by Moses as he washed their clothes and told them to be separate. Later on in Exodus 19, verse 23, Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for thou chargest us, saying, Set bounds about the mount and sanctify it. Now, earlier in the book of Exodus 19, God tells Moses to pile rocks up around Mount Sinai. Pile rocks up around it. And if anyone passes beyond this boundary of rocks, they're to be executed. If an animal passes beyond the boundary of rocks, they're to be thrust through with a dart. And this is referenced over in the book of Hebrews chapter 12 as he talks about the mountain that we've come unto today, the church, Mount Zion, the kingdom of God, the assembly of the saints. This isn't a place where we're terrified at the presence of God. It's a place where we experience him through the Holy Spirit. It's a glorious place. But in this day, they were told, you cannot, you cannot pass through this boundary onto the mountain if you do, look at verse 12, set bounds unto the people round about, saying, Take heed to yourself that you go not upon the mountain or touch the border of it. Whosoever toucheth the mount shall be surely put to death. There shall not be a hand touch it, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through. Whether it be beast or man, it shall not live. When the trumpet soundeth long, they shall come up to the mountain. It was sanctified. And when Moses placed those rocks around it and told the people, you cannot come to Mount Sinai, what did he do? He sanctified the mountain. Why does the mountain need to be sanctified? Because the mountain would have a holy usage momentarily. What happens on top of the mountain? God speaks. 
He gives Moses the law, the Ten Commandments. When does that happen? Exodus 20, the very next chapter. God would eventually take tablets of stone, carve them out himself, and Moses would take these down to the children of Israel. Now you think the children of Israel would have better sense than they have. And then we have experiences such as the golden calf. He comes down, Moses sees this happen, he breaks the tablets, he is angry at them. It sounds like the noise of war in the camp. When God speaks to them, when he speaks to Moses and everything here is taking place, the people were terrified because God's voice thundered throughout the entire wilderness. There's a giant desert. The voice of God thunders and these people are afraid. And yet, what do they do? Well, they start dancing around a golden calf that they make, pretending that it's the Lord who delivered them out of Egypt. It, it is amazing. Sometimes the oblivious blindness of the nation of Israel. You just want to stop and shake them and say, what in the world are you thinking? The mountain was what? It was sanctified. The mountain was sanctified. Turn over to the book of Leviticus. I'll give you another example of God sanctifying someone or something. Leviticus chapter 8 and verse 30. And Moses took of the anointing oil. And we talked about when you sanctify something, many times you... Act on it in an outward way. Moses put the rocks around the mountain. Moses washed the people's clothing and told them to be separate. In this case, the priesthood is going to be sanctified. And so Moses took the anointing oil and the blood which was upon the altar, and he sprinkled it upon Aaron and upon his garments and upon his sons and upon his sons' garments with him, and sanctified Aaron and his garments and his sons and his sons' garments with him. The sanctification of the priesthood. Now, Aaron was the brother of Moses, and Aaron was of what tribe? How many of you know? The tribe of Levi. He was a Levite. In the nation of Israel, you had 12 tribes, and of those 12, one of the tribes, rather than receiving a land inheritance, was given the Lord as their inheritance. And by that, what God meant was they were to be in the temple, or in this case, in this day, the tabernacle, the tent that was carried about as a temporary place of worship before the temple was built as they wandered in the wilderness. And these priests would offer sacrifices unto God. Now, again, the law is a shadow of things to come. What are they pointing towards? The fact that an offering had to be made for us for sin to stand before God. And also every offering pointed to the fact that the Lord Jesus, as our lamb, would be slain for us and would take away our sin debt. So we see imagery of Jesus all through everything that takes place. It's daily, it's, it's this yearly Bible reading program time. Sonny Powell's once made the joke that Genesis is called Genesis because that's where everybody begins reading the Bible, and Exodus is called Exodus because that's when everybody exits reading the Bible. If you make it to Leviticus, congratulations, but don't think what you're reading here is boring and bland and drab. All of these sacrifices point to the Lord Jesus, and they're very special, they're significant. These were shadows of things to come, good things to come. This is a sanctified, consecrated priesthood. 
sanctified, sanctified, consecrated priesthood. The altar would even have to be sanctified. The altar would be sanctified. Now, as far as sanctification being similar or synonymous at times with Leviticus, I guess the way that you could say that is for something to be sanctified, they had to be consecrated. would be a way to say that. Here in Leviticus chapter 8, you find the word sanctification. In verse 22, he brought the other ram, the ram of consecration, Aaron and his son. Sons laid their hands upon the head of the ram. They slew it. They applied the blood as they were commanded, sprinkled it round about the altar. I'll spare you the graphic description of what happened to this according to the law in verse 25. Verse 28, they were consecrations for a sweet savor. It is an offering made by fire unto the Lord. Verse 29, Moses took the breast and waved it for a wave offering before the Lord. For of the ram of consecration, it was Moses' part as the Lord commanded. God had given them laws whereby they consecrate themselves that they might be, in a ceremonial sense, sanctified. And something that is sanctified was to be used in a holy way. In this day, the holy way that they were used was that they were to go about the priesthood of the Old Testament and perform all of the work of the priests in the Old Testament. They had to be sanctified in a ceremonial sense. Flip over to Numbers chapter 7. Give you another example of something being sanctified. Numbers chapter 7 and verse 1. It came to pass on the day that Moses had fully set up the tabernacle. The word tabernacle means tent. So when you read about our tabernacle of clay, our body, or our tabernacle of flesh, we're reading about our bodies that our soul inhabits and... When our bodies die, what they're telling us there, the Bible writers, is that when our bodies die, our souls go to be with God in glory. There's no soul sleep. Our bodies sleep. And these tabernacles will be raised again, conformed to the image of Jesus, glorified at the end of time. came to pass on the day that Moses had fully set up the tabernacle, the tent in which God was to be worshipped through the offering and application of the blood of all the animals that were sacrificed I've heard preachers point out, and this is so true, that the Old Testament was such a bloody form of religion. Such a bloody form of religion. Think about it. All of these families, all of these people, every time a child is born, for atonement and all of these other reasons, people bring animals, the animals are slaughtered, and their bodies are dealt with, their blood is dealt with according to the law. I just had the passing thought that, could you imagine if organizations such as PETA existed, in the Old Testament. You know, they get mad at you if you eat a hamburger. Could you imagine the reaction that PETA would have to the millions and millions and millions of bulls and goats and rams and sheep and birds that were offered to God in the Old Testament? I could not begin to imagine the filthy, exhausting work of being a priest in the Old Testament. The place all around it must have just been filthy because of the animals that were continuously being slain. Moses set up the tabernacle, this place where animals were to be sacrificed, and anointed it and sanctified it. And all the instruments thereof, both the altar and all the vessels thereof, and had anointed them and sanctified them. 
The tabernacle was a sanctified place. The tabernacle was a sanctified place. By the way, as we consider this in a New Testament perspective today, the temple of God today is a sanctified place. Now, that doesn't mean that our building has somehow been sanctified and that when you walk in, you take off your shoes and it's a holy place and the higher up you get, and the nearer to the pulpit, the more holy it is. So people that sit on the front row, they feel more holiness emanating from the pulpit than the people in the back. Maybe that's why Baptists always sit in the back. Brother Hewlin sits on the front, his face glows after sermons. We make him wear a veil. That's not the way that works. The temple isn't this physical structure today. The temple is you. You are a sanctified temple. You are the temple of the Holy Ghost. You are sanctified. You see where this points towards that. But he sanctifies the tabernacle, sanctified the altar. What was the New Testament altar? Where was the sacrifice made? As Jesus hung upon the cross of Calvary, was that a sanctified altar? Was it set aside for holy usage? Absolutely. God used that for our salvation. Again, what's the motto here? Wherever we begin in the scriptures, we run as quickly as we can to the cross of Calvary. You can go straight there from here in Numbers chapter 7. In short, anything that was used by God for a holy purpose was sanctified. Now, how does this apply to us? Well, in terms of purpose, I'll share with you three ways that we have been sanctified by God. In terms of purpose... You were sanctified by God the Father before the world was created. What does sanctify mean? Just one definition of it. To set aside for holy usage. What does Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4 say? According as He has chosen you in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. You were sanctified by God the Father before the world began, he set you aside for holy usage. Jude verse 1 says it this way, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. And I believe that you could find the Trinitarian formula of salvation there. Sanctified by the Father, preserved in Christ, and called by the Holy Spirit. Each person of the three-in-one Godhead had a role in our salvation. In purpose, God the Father purposed to save us before the foundation of the world. And in that sense, we were sanctified by Him before the world began. And so God the Father did sanctify you. But in the book of Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 10, we read that we were sanctified by the offering of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that tells us that as the Lord was upon the cross of Calvary, as He offered His body for all of us once... By the which will, verse 10, we were sanctified, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. In a sense, we are set aside for holy usage through the offering of Jesus Christ. We've been sanctified by Jesus as he gave himself for us upon the cross of Calvary. But also, when the Holy Spirit came into our hearts... And saved us when we were dead in trespasses and in sins. And when he quickened us. When we experienced the new birth. When we were made new creatures in Christ Jesus. He did vitally 
vitally sanctify us. Romans speaks of the sanctification of the Holy Spirit in verse chapter 15 and verse 16. Sanctified by the Holy Ghost. And so, Scripture speaks about being sanctified by the Father in purpose, the Son, legally, as He shed His blood for us upon the cross, positionally, and then also vitally through the inner workings of the Holy Spirit. You might refer to this as a doctrinal perspective, positional perspective, where we are as sanctified people through and only through God's grace. Now, regarding the second definition, the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. After the, uh, after the new birth and before glorification, God's work on us is called preservation. We read that in Jude. Preserved in Christ. God does keep us as the shepherd and the bishop of our souls. We are kept secure through Christ. He says in John chapter 10, No man is able to pluck them out of my hand. We are kept in Christ. Paul asks in the book of Romans, What shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord? And he goes on to list one terrible thing after, after another. You have peril, sword. You have enemies of the cross. You have height. You have depth. You have any other creature. Things present. Things to come. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God which is in our Savior Jesus Christ. Why? Because we're kept by Him. Kept by Him. We are preserved. We are preserved through God. God's work on us is called preservation. After the new birth again, and before glorification, God's work on us is called preservation. Our state... Between the new birth and glorification, ask the question, what's glorification? When we are resurrected from the dead, or if we're here when Jesus returns again and we are changed, we are then glorified. Why is it described as glorified? Because we will be completely holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, completely and wholly conformed to the image of God's dear Son. Romans chapter 8. When we are raised again, we are in a state of glory, existing exactly as Jesus is. What an incredible thought is that. Between the new birth, regeneration, and glorification, our state here in the world is one of sanctification. Sanctification. We've been sanctified by the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Now remember Elder Gowen's definition of that. The ongoing work of inner transformation into Christ's glorious image. The last phase of sanctification that we talked about from the perspective of the Godhead working on us. The first was God the Father. The second was God the Son. The third was the work of the Holy Spirit. Whose work was that? The work of the Holy Spirit. What happens at the new birth? And this is sanctification. At minimum, at the new birth, God's laws are written on our hearts. Now, there was a time when you knew that it was wrong to do something that's wrong because someone told you. 
Paul says this in Romans chapter 7. He said, I would not have known lust, except the scripture saith, thou shalt not covet. We know that it's wrong because someone tells us, they inform the mind. But before the new birth, there is no inner conviction when we sin that what we have done is wrong. I'm sure all of you in this room have done things at one point or another in your life that when you do them, you think, I regret that. Not because I'm in trouble, but because I know that it was wrong. That feeling is a result of the Holy Spirit in your heart. That spirit or that feeling is a result of sanctification. The effects of sanctification. God's laws are written upon your heart. Hebrews chapter 8 says this. We won't read that for the sake of time. The laws being written on our heart, we now know that it is wrong to steal. We know that it is wrong to lie. We know that it is wrong to murder. We know that it is wrong to covet. Before, we only knew because someone had told us, and the only reason that we abstain from it is because of the social ramifications of doing so. In other words, you might be so mad that you could beat somebody to a bloody pulp, but the reason that you don't is because you don't want to go to jail. Whereas hopefully after the new birth, you don't want that on your conscience. You don't want to feel the guilt of doing such a thing. You know that it's wrong, and you have an apprehension against doing it. God's laws are written on the heart, and this is sanctification. If there's one thing that you get from this second definition, it's that what God has done on your heart is sanctification. Number two, at minimum. This is under at minimum. At minimum... The fruit of the Spirit are now personality traits, albeit to varying degrees at various times. You know the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, all these wonderful personality traits. And we notice that they're more of personality traits than they are actions. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. These traits are a part of your personality because the Holy Spirit has sent the Spirit of, or God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your heart, crying, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit has written the laws of God on your heart. And now, a part of your personality includes love, joy, peace, long suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Remember, before the new birth, there's none that seeketh after God. There's none that understandeth God. There's none that fears God. They're all gone astray. They're all gone out of the way. The poison of asps is under their lips. That's a venomous snake from the Middle East. Their throat is an open sepulcher. We know what life looks like before Christ. But after, these are a part of you, a part of who you are. Number three, at minimum, a conviction of sin exists. It's just a, an unavoidable consequence of the laws of God being written on your heart, a conviction of sin exists. You can desensitize that through repeated exposure to sin the same way that you can callous your hands through hard labor. If you take a flame and you burn your finger, and we used to you know, launch bottle rockets from our hands at each other. Don't do that. Kids, don't do that. But we would do that. In high school, we would have bottle rocket wars when we were out of BBs. And we would launch those, just holding them in our hands. And it would burn our hands. What happened to the skin? It burned, it was calloused, and it was desensitized. We can desensitize ourselves 
But at minimum, we have a conviction of sin. That state is sanctification. That state is sanctification. As Peter said, we have been made partakers of the divine nature. Praise God, we have been made partakers of the divine nature. What Scripture would refer to us in that state is a, as a babe in Christ. A babe in Christ. Though we love our babies, we also love to watch them grow up. And so now we want to transition into a more practical aspect of this with the 10 minutes that we have remaining and focus on what we refer to as practical sanctification, where we grow beyond the minimum into spiritual maturity. We grow beyond being babes in Christ to being mature, equipped, fit to be used by God, disciples of Christ. Let's tie these two definitions together. As we grow in our sanctification, we are more fit to be used by God for holy purposes. If I'm staying out on Saturday night and hanging out and getting wasted with friends, do you think God would bless me to come here on Sunday morning and preach the gospel to you? No, I'd be all of all men most miserable. I'd be a miserable man. We want to grow in sanctification so God will be pleased to use us in his service. Now, there are several passages bouncing around my mind that I read over the course of this week. Paul would exhort us in the book of Titus to be ready unto every good work. And he would use that language, prepared for good work, in the book of 2 Timothy chapter 2. And we'll cite that one in just a moment. Titus 3.1, to be ready to every good work. To be ready to every good work means that I am engaging in trying to grow in sanctification so when... There's a work that needs to be done. God will look at me and say, I will use you for that work, ready for every good work. Or as he said in 2 Timothy 2, prepared unto every good work. The more we grow, the more set aside for holy usage we are, the more God will choose to use us to do amazing things in his cause. Now, a lot of times you hear preachers that, I don't know if they don't understand the joy part of being a child of God. Stand up and they lecture God's people and they talk down to God's people. And they put guilt trips on God's people. And they sound like some sort of an annoying school principal screaming that everyone's a bunch of slackers. This isn't a dry, drab, depressing concept. Holiness is beautiful. Holiness is liberating. Holiness is invigorating. This isn't a matter of, well, oh, no, I need to do a better job. No, it's take his hand and walk with him and see the amazing things that he does in your life when you pursue him. 
Those of you that have walked for, with Christ for decades, tell the younger people in this room later the things that God has done in your life. Tell them about the things He's blessed you to do, the things He's blessed you to see, the things that He's accomplished for His own glory through using you as His sanctified vessel. It's an invigorating thing to know that God will use you. Now, practical sanctification is when we seek to grow in our sanctification and we become vessels fit to be used by God. Practical sanctification. Growing in grace and knowledge exists under this umbrella. What did Peter conclude, Second Peter, with? But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me ask you this question. Is this sanctification, this phase of sanctification automatic? No. But it is something that we're exhorted to pursue. Now, since growing in holiness and thereby sanctification is God's purpose for me, because it's beneficial to me, because it makes me one whom God will use for his purposes. Do you want to be a Joseph? Do you want to be a Daniel? Do you want to be a David? How do I grow in sanctification? I'll give you three principles. First of all, just as a caveat and a preface and a warning, never omit the grace factor of this. Sometimes we think, all right, if I heard a message on sanctification, I'm going to go out and be holy. You know how we are holy? Grace. And so to grow in holiness, what do I need? Grace. He gives, according to John's gospel, grace for grace. What an amazing thought. What's the currency? Grace. And so we never want to omit the grace factor in growing in our practical sanctification. John chapter 17, principle number two. We grow through the truth of God's word. How many of you found that to be surprising? Not at all. But let's hear Jesus say it. As he's praying in John chapter 17 for his disciples that were given to him out of the world. He prays not for the world. He prays for them. And he prays for those who will believe through them. That's you. He says, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. There is sanctification to be found through the truth. Now, what must first happen? We've already talked about it. Sanctified in God's purpose. Sanctified legally upon the cross. Sanctified vitally through the Holy Spirit. But I grow in holiness as I study the Word of God. Make 2020 a year of studying the Word of God. If you've never read the Bible all the way through, start today. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Set them apart to be used. Now, is he talking about unregenerates here? He's talking about his disciples. 
Sanctify us as people who have already received the degree of sanctification through the truth of God's Word. And then finally, 2 Timothy chapter 2, we referred to this just a moment ago. After saying, the foundation of God stands sure having the seal of the Lord knows them that are His, and exhorting, let everyone that names the name of Christ depart from iniquity, Paul gives Timothy a metaphor. In a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and earth, some to honor and some to dishonor. Just simply put, there are things when someone comes into your house that you want to show them. There are good things, things to honor and there are things to dishonor. There are places in your home when someone visits you, you do not say, let me go show you my filthy utility room. Let me open my washing machine. Look at the mold around the edge. Isn't that great? You don't do that. Because in a house, there's places to honor and places to dishonor. I could be even more graphic. I won't. In a great house, there are vessels to honor and vessels to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor sanctified and meet, which means appropriate, for the master's use and prepared unto every good work. That means that I can live my life in such a way where I am not appropriate for the master's use. Now, God uses all kinds of people in the Bible for all kinds of purposes. Pharaoh was a man that was not sanctified, and God used him, but not in the way that I want God to use me. Amen? None of us want to be afflicted by God, plagued by God, drowned in the middle of the Red Sea by God. Now, God used him to publish his name throughout all the world as an enemy that was defeated. But I want to be used by God in positive, wholesome, holy ways. How do I sanctify myself in such a way that I will be prepared unto every good work and meet appropriate for God's use? If a man therefore purge himself from these, you are the house. Your life is made up of the vessels unto honor and the vessels unto dishonor. And to be a person that is appropriate to be used by God, we must purge ourselves of the inappropriate things, the unprofitable things, the dishonorable things. Practical sanctification is always through the inner workings of the Holy Spirit and grace. It is through the truth of God's Word and lastly, we grow through intentionally purging our lives of unprofitable things. Make a list of the things in your life that you know are unprofitable and seek to purge them and to replace those moments in your life with the pursuit of Christ. And he'll use you in amazing ways.